Well, our study today is titled Correction. And as we begin to uh, discuss this, this was suggested that I would speak on this for a little bit. I want you to pause for just a second and think about times that you have either seen somebody correct somebody else uh, and think about their response in general. Or think about times in which you yourself have been corrected and ask yourself that how did that make you specifically feel? There are a lot of people that think that correction in general is negative. Some think it is very confrontational. Some would go so far as to say that it is divisive. And I'll be honest, as I began to contemplate this subject, I really have to admit that I see this take place all the time. I see quite often where I go to quite a few sites that discuss religious things and people from numerous different backgrounds will discuss religious topics. And quite often I'll hear people say, you know, you're being so negative or why do you always have to be so confrontational regarding religious matters? Some even saying, you know, all you're doing is really being divisive uh, amongst Christendom or all of those who pertain to be followers of Christ. I see this all the time. And that's pretty common response. You're being very negative and confrontational and divisive. And I began to think a little bit about this. If you will, go ahead and start turning to Matthew chapter 23. I began to think about a number of verses that I could use, although I'm going to try to limit my time somewhat here tonight. And so instead of listing a bunch of uh, different individual verses where we have correction taking place, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go over to Matthew chapter 23, and I would uh, ask that if you would follow along, get your Bible, uh, follow along with me. And what we have here is Jesus... He's addressing the crowd, but in so doing, he is speaking about the religious rulers of the day. Now, before I read this, go ahead and start turning there. As I'm reading along here, listen to Jesus' words uh, and ask yourself, does he come across as being negative or uh, being harsh uh, regarding these religious rulers of your day? Follow along with me, Matthew chapter 23. I am reading from the King James Version. It says, then, spe then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Let me pause for a second. Man, he's actually starting to call these people out. There are a lot of people who would call this a personal attack taking place right here. Why is Jesus talking about these people in such manner? Well, you're going to find out why. Verse 5, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge their borders of their garments. Right? They, they want to look very uh, religious. goes on, verse 6, And love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Let me pause for a minute. You know, I grew up in a Catholic denomination. They go around calling priests father. And he's talking about religious titles here. 
Now, we don't have the right to be creating these religious titles like this. He goes on, verse 10, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now, let's see what he begins to say about these religious rulers. I, I mentioned earlier, it, it appears that some would say he's, he's giving a personal attack and that he's confrontational and that he's being negative and that he's being divisive. He goes on, listen, starting in verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye, that are, that, uh, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. And therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation." Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. It's talking about going out and drawing those into the faith of Judaism. He goes on. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple, that, sa that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is, the, whether is greater, the gift or the altar, that sanctifieth the gift. Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the, plat of, of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity, sin. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets." And wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? And wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. And some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth 
from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I'm going to tell you what, I don't know that I've, I've ever preached a sermon uh, quite that harsh. Uh, and if I were to post something like that on social media, what do you think people would say? Man, that was negative. Did you see how negative uh, Sean was when he's talking about these, these religious teachers out there? I mean, he came across as, as pretty harsh, don't you think? Do you think Jesus seemed like he was kind of in your face? Do you think that came across as harsh? Was it negative? Was it confrontational? Was it divisive? Well, let me go back and just quickly recap what it was that Jesus said. Here's the summary of what Jesus just said. And again, he focused very heavily on correction for those in the crowd, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's basically what he says to them. They taught about God, but they didn't love God themselves. And then he goes on and says, they didn't enter the kingdom of heaven themselves, nor were they going to let other people enter into this kingdom. Does that seem harsh? Yeah. Was it true? Well, absolutely it was. He says, they preached God, but they converted people to a dead religion, thus making those converts, converts twice as much the sons of hell as they themselves were. Does that seem harsh? Yeah. Was it true? Absolutely it was. They taught that an oath sworn by the temple or the altar was not binding, but that if you swore an oath by the gold ornamentation that's in the temple or by a sacrificial gift which was given on the altar, it was binding. Now, his point here simply was this. These guys are teaching contradictory things. They're hypocritical, and it appears that they're really just making it up as they go because you don't find that stuff in the Scriptures anywhere. We find people doing that in the religious world today. Did Jesus seem harsh when he said that? Yeah. Was it true? Well, absolutely it was. They taught the, the law, but they didn't practice a majority of the important parts of the law themselves. He says like justice and mercy and faithfulness to God. And again, his point was that you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And he literally said it time after time after time. Does that seem harsh? Yeah. Was it true? Well, absolutely it was. They presented an appearance of being clean or pure, and yet he describes them as being filthy inside with all these hidden worldly desires and, and carnality of mind. They were full of greed. They were self-indulgent. Does that seem harsh? Yeah. Was it true? Absolutely it was. They exhibited themselves to other people as being righteous on account that they were, they were so scrupulous of, of keeping some portions of the law, while other portions they didn't keep at all. Uh, and he goes on and they try to present themselves as being righteous when in fact they weren't. He says this is really all for show. It actually hid the fact that they had, they were, they had this secret uh, filled up body full of desires and ungodly thoughts and feelings. They were full of wickedness. And he says they're like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside, but inside you guys are nothing but a bunch of dead men's bones. Does that seem harsh? Yeah. 
Was it true? Well, absolutely it was. They professed a really high regard for all these dead prophets, and they claimed that they'd have never been like those forefathers that persecuted and murdered the prophets, when in fact they were just like the previous persecutors and murderers. They too had uh, the desire to murder or this, this murderous blood and thoughts in their veins, and they even wanted to kill Christ. Does that come across as harsh? Yeah. Was it true? Well, absolutely it was. They even were responsible in part for the killing of our Messiah. Now, with all of that being said, there are a lot of people today who have condemned those who teach absolute truth in a very straightforward manner. And let me say this, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was teaching absolute truth in a very straightforward manner. I'm going to tell you what, if I'd been in the crowd and I was a Pharisee or a scribe and he began to call me out and tell me I was a hypocrite, I might have taken that as being a little bit negative. I might have even said that that's a little bit confrontational. I might have even said, you know what, this guy's really being pretty divisive when he begins to talk about us and our beliefs. And so some would say, well, why is it that you have to be so negative all the time? Why did Jesus have to be so negative? Guys, the answer is that truth and correction simply by, the, by its own nature oftentimes is going to be negative. Whether it's negative or whether it's positive is going to depend on the person receiving the truth or the correction and the position of their heart or how willing they are and how much they desire to be righteous. If you want to be righteous and someone comes and tells you the Bible teaches you ought not to do this or you ought to do that, your desire for righteousness would be, oh, I'm, so, I'm so grateful that you told me that. But if your desire really isn't about righteousness, maybe it's just to be right, or maybe it's to prove that your denominational group is right, or maybe it's to prove that your personal thoughts and, and feelings are right, you're probably going to feel like somebody's being confrontational, that, like they're being divisive. There were many people in Christ's day, they needed to hear this type of a straightforward correction. They needed to know the error of their ways. The people in the crowd needed to know that the people they were following and even looking up to, these Pharisees and these scribes, were a bunch of hypocrites and that there were certain things they ought not to be following after in their manner of living and how they were behaving. They needed to know that change was needed. Now let me say this, if a police officer were to pull you over and he were to get you out of the car and begin to tell you and, and cite to you the laws and tell you that you broke the laws, would you consider that to be pretty confrontational? Would it come across as being negative? And yet you've got people today who have no problem breaking the laws of God. And just like those who oftentimes will break the law, our physical laws here in the United States or in the state of Michigan, and when an officer tries to correct them and to really actually help them out, They'll talk about how negative he was or how confrontational or divisive he was. And guys, the same thing's happening with religious matters. There are consequences when I break the physical laws out there. Usually when an officer pulls you over, depending on the severity of the crime, he's going to talk to you a little bit about it before you actually get punished and cited. Well, the point simply is, is there's a consequence, and so you need to know. You need to know the truth. And guys, there is a spiritual consequence for those that do not understand 
the Scriptures, how to be faithful, how to become a Christian, and then how to live as a faithful Christian. And I'm going to tell you the consequences that you face in the afterlife are a hundred times worse than what you're going to face here in the state of Michigan or any of the other United States. Ask yourself this question as we begin to talk about correction. I guess we could say or lack of correction or willingness to accept it. Why have a lot of the churches of Christ in America become lukewarm? That's a pretty good question. Why are there over 60 different denominations within the United States and uncountable community churches in the United States all teaching different doctrines? That's another good question. Why has religious division been going on since the beginning of the first century where we see congregations were actually diverging from the faith which had once been delivered? Jude 1.3. That's another good question. All these different groups, denominational groups, community churches, all of them teaching different doctrines. Uh, and guys, that's the most obvious reason we have correction. The Baptists teach one thing. Someone says the Bible doesn't teach that. Confrontational, right? The Pentecostals teach one thing. People say the Bible doesn't teach that. Confrontational. The Catholic Church teaches one thing. Somebody says the Bible doesn't teach that. Confrontational. Is it confrontational or is it simply the giving of knowledge which somebody rejects and then calls confrontational or calls divisive or calls negative? We need to start off with a very simple basic. I'm going to go over to Jude 1.3. I just cited it a second ago. There was and is just one faith described in our New Testament. Listen to Jude 1.3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith had been delivered there in the first century. Guys, you don't even find denominational groups in community churches until over a thousand years later. You didn't find that. Now, you do find congregations that were straying away from the faith. And it's interesting, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. When they did that, they were corrected. You think that came across as negative, divisive? Yeah, probably so. Was it needed? Absolutely. Today it's interesting, and just like in the New Testament, many are willing to accept false teachers and false teaching more eagerly than they're willing to accept truth. I'm going to say that's, that's pretty much a fact. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with them. What's he trying to get us to understand? There were people actually in their midst that were teaching truth, but he says, you have somebody come over here and teach you another Jesus and another gospel, you'll accept that kind of nonsense easier than you'll accept just the straight-up truth coming from somebody else, even, even in some cases, Paul himself. Specifically, when we begin to talk here with uh, the congregation in Corinth. And here's the question, why? Why would people be so willing to accept false teachers and false doctrine as opposed to somebody who is simply teaching truth? Guys, I'm going to tell you this, that today... I get disgusted every time I see a Christian posting Francis Chan's doctrinal error. And I see our brethren doing it all the time. Do they need to be corrected? 
Absolutely they do. I get disgusted every time I see a Christian posting denominational ministers' quotes, denominational teachings or doctrine, and pointing people to denominational resources. Do they need to be corrected? Absolutely they do. I get disgusted every time I see a, a Christian posting erroneous teachings by some of our so-called even prominent brethren who are more worried about website hits and YouTube likes than they are about following the old paths based on scriptural authority. Do they need to be corrected? Absolutely they do. Let me say this. Do you think it's going to come across as confrontational? Probably so. Do you think it's going to come across as divisive? I would say so because most congregations, faithful ones, they're not going to have anything to do with unfaithful congregations and unfaithful ministers out teaching rank heresy and error. Right? That's going to come across as divisive. Some are going to call it unloving. We'll address that too. So don't they need to be corrected when they're involved in this kind of stuff, when they're involved in promoting error, pointing even our own brethren over to denominational and community church error? Absolutely they do. Here's the real question. Why is correction often looked upon as hateful, being divisive, or confrontational? At least to those who uh, hold to error. I guess if I taught all kinds of horrible, horrendous error, and people were constantly critiquing me and telling me, you know, that, that's not anywhere in the Bible, I'm guessing after a little while I'd probably get tired of it. I'd probably begin to say, you know what, that's, that's pretty divisive and that's confrontational. And I really just don't like to even listen to that. So why do they do it? Why do they say it's confrontational? Why do they say it's divisive? Well, I already pointed out earlier the truth of the matter of the fact is, is it is confrontational. It is divisive. It does cause people to get angry. I believe it's because many people, both within the churches of Christ and also within denominational groups and community churches, don't want to be held to any type of accountability. And so, just like today, many people will, if they don't like what you're saying, they'll call you a racist or they'll try to apply some type of a, a label to you and try to create a stigma to make you the bad person. When you correct somebody, they don't want to look like they're in the wrong, so what do they do? The same thing. They begin to attack you personally. They begin to call you names. They begin to try to associate you with somebody who's a troublemaker. Guys, nobody wants to be corrected. And many do look at correction as being aggressive and being hate-filled and being a personal attack on another. I wonder if there were people in the crowd when Jesus there in Matthew 23 was addressing those religious rulers. I wonder if they thought, Wow, can you believe the things he is saying? About these religious rulers? Can you, I mean, this, is a, this appears to be a straight-out personal attack on them. Was it a personal attack on them, or was it a personal attack on the things they did and the doctrine they taught or held to, or that they were actually enacting and living out in their life? He didn't call nobody's name out. He was addressing the religious rulers and, in general, the things that they were doing. Let's talk for a few seconds about correction in the New Testament. And let's point this out. I'm not perfect by any means. Have I ever been corrected? Absolutely, I have. Did it sting just a little bit? Absolutely, it did. Nobody likes to be corrected, and yet at times we do fall short of the standard of God. We've all sinned, Romans 3.23. There'll be a consequence for that, Romans 6.23. We need to learn to give and to receive correction when we either find ourselves in sin or we find somebody else 
in sin. Now, the Bible certainly speaks of this both regarding private matters and then also public matters. Let me, let me say this. I see all the time where somebody is publicly teaching rank heresy and error, and somebody says, hey, look at this guy. He's teaching error. None of this stuff's found in the Bible. And then somebody will say, did you go to him personally? Did you correct him personally? Guys, once it's out on Facebook, once it's on YouTube, it's no longer a private matter. You are a public false teacher, and you can be addressed as such, and you need to be addressed as such. You need to be corrected publicly. But the Bible addresses both private and public. I'm going to go over to Matthew 18, 15, but if you do want to read up the entire, read Matthew 18, 15 through 17. But I'm just going to point out the private matter. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. We are instructed to go correct them. Is it going to come across as harsh? Probably. just depends on the person and whether they want to be righteous or not righteous. Is it going to be viewed as being divisive? Possibly. Is it going to be viewed as being confrontational? That possibly depends again on, on their mindset. But this is the same thing when we begin to look at public, whether it's private or public, ask yourself, do you think it's really going to be received well? Probably not. Uh, but is it hateful to go and to correct your brother or your sister in Christ who's engaged in sin? No, it's not. Not only is it not hateful, it's actually very loving, and you're commanded to do such. So for all those people who see someone correcting someone and then begin to call them a hater and confrontational and divisive, what I would say is, is how much do you love God when you're not willing to actually do what God has told you to do? If you can go back and verify with the Scriptures that they're incorrect, then you need to address that. But if what they're saying is correct, you're the one with the problem. Notice regarding matters that are public. Paul tells Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 2, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. That's when they want to hear it, and that's when they don't want to hear it. And then he says, reprove. This is taking place during preaching. This is public. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Right? Don't, don't get away from the doctrine. You need to reprove and rebuke those who aren't holding to that. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn their ears away from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Do you think publicly rebuking and reproving false teaching and false teachers is going to be well received? It's not. For the most part, it's not. But is it hateful to correct another, whether it's a non-Christian or a brother in Christ, who holds to erroneous doctrine, they oppose sound doctrine, and as I mentioned earlier, there is a consequence when one dies in that sinful state. Is it unloving to go correct them? Well, again, the answer is no. As a matter of fact, when you begin to read through the Scriptures, you are going to see it repeated in one form or another time and time again that there is a need for correction. Now, of course, the source for correction is our holy inspired Word of God. If I hear somebody teaching something, I'm not going to say, you know, I, I really think that what you're saying is unloving, or I really feel that, that this is really... What I'm going to say is, is, did you know the Scriptures teach? Do you know the Scripture says? You know, we find in our Scriptures, I'm not going to give my personal opinion on anything. 
And guys, how easy is it to come back on somebody when they go, you know what I think? We're all over that. At least we should be within the churches of Christ because we don't do anything. We shouldn't be doing anything like that. We give book, chapter, and verse. That is our source of authority. It is the source and the authority for our correction. It's how we're supposed to live our lives, and it's the entirety of the doctrine that we live by. So when somebody's teaching something that's not found in our doctrine, if we love them, we ought to say, I understand what you're saying. I'm curious how you came to that because I don't find that in my scriptures. As a matter of fact, my scriptures teach. And then we begin to address it. Let me point something out to you before I move on any further. You guys know that John the Baptist preached to the Jews publicly? And he corrected people. He used some pretty strong language. Some would call him divisive and confrontational and negative. Jesus preached to the Jews publicly. We've already looked at an example here in Matthew 23. Some would say he used strong words. He was confrontational. He was divisive. Some would even go so far as to call him negative. We know that the apostles preached first to the Jews, and then after the kingdom was established, they also preached to the Gentiles. And in both cases, we find them doing it publicly, and they corrected people. And some would say that the words they used were a little strong. Some would say harsh. Some say they were confrontational. Some might even say that they were causing division. And then we have evangelists who were going from city to city. They were preaching to people publicly, and they even corrected people. Some would say their words were harsh, that they were divisive, that they were causing division. Guys, we even do that today. We use uh, a number of different methods to try to teach the truth and even to point out error. I do it consistently within sermons. I do it consistently within Bible studies. We oftentimes will use social media. Quite often what we do to simply get it going is, is we'll simply post a passage and maybe make a statement about, uh, about what it is that is there. And then all of a sudden, guys, you know the fireworks start. Somebody will come back and say, I don't think the Bible teaches that. Or what? And guys, religious discussion is great. But oftentimes when we begin to post these things, people begin to label those who hold to the truth, right? Well, he keeps saying baptism's required, but he won't budge on it. Man, he's so narrow-minded and divisive and confrontational. I mean, why does he got to oppose people that, that sprinkle, or why does he got to oppose people that pour, or why does he even have to oppose people that are faith only? He's just so divisive all the time. I'll point out the reason why I have to be divisive on an issue like that here in a couple of minutes. So why is it that when people are told the truth whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, why is it they hate correction? Why is it they would even claim that being told how to be righteous is hateful? Could be a number of reasons. They may be prideful. Maybe that they have low self-esteem. It may be that they're just completely ignorant of the Scriptures. It may be that they reject the authority of the Scriptures or they accept the authority of denominational doctrine or they accept the authority of maybe one-man hierarchy systems found in some congregations where he teaches something contradictory to the, the Scriptures and they want to be in alignment with their favorite pet preacher. Maybe simply they disbelieve in God. But let's ask this question. Why is correction actually not hateful? Well, correction is actually the opposite of hate. It is love. It's driven by a true love for people's souls and the desire for the one being corrected to actually be righteous, to do things according to the Scriptures, maybe if they're non-Christians, to get them to obey the Gospel, and if they are Christians, to get them to come back to the Gospel. And I'll deal with that here in a couple of minutes. Correction through truth will keep people from ignorance. 
Sometimes we use a different word, and I'll get to that in a minute. And what I'm going to tell you is literally found in the Scriptures. I know that some people are going to hear what I say here in just a second, and they're going to say that that is a really bad choice of words. I'm not only going to show you an example, but then I'm going to use a little bit of logic to go along with it. Go to Proverbs 12, verse 1. The Proverbs writer states, Whoso loveth instruction, loveth knowledge. Let me pause. I can think back to times when my dad was instructing me. Of course, you know, when we're kids, we think we know everything. I guess that would be like some of the people in different religious groups and even within the churches of Christ today think they know everything. And as he was instructing me, eh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Now, there were things I really enjoyed doing, and my dad would instruct me in those things, and I took everything he said, hook, line, and sinker, because I wanted to know how to do it, and I wanted to know how to do it accurately. The Proverbs writer says, Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. That word brutish could be translated literally as stupid or ignorant. Is there a difference between the two? There is. There's a little bit of a difference, and I think we get this. If I'm walking around, I'll try to use the most basic example I can. If I'm walking around and I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5, uh, but I desire truth, I am going to be ecstatic when someone comes over and says, Hey, Sean, I, I see you believe 2 plus 2 is 5, but they begin to work out with a piece of paper that 2 plus 2 actually equals 4, and that 4 is truth. And if I want to be if I want to be correct and I desire truth, I am going to be ecstatic that they, sent, they sat down and they showed me that. I'm not going to go, man, you're so divisive. I mean, what's it matter whether it's four or whether it's five? Notice how your state of mind depends on whether you consider something confrontational or divisive or whether you're thrilled to, to have it being told to you. But if after I am shown that two plus two actually equals four, and I decide to go ahead through the remainder of my life and believe that it's actually five, I am simply choosing to be stupid. And I say that because I'm no longer ignorant. I might have been ignorant at one point, but once somebody shows me that 2 plus 2 now equals 4, I either have to choose to love the truth and accept truth, or I simply choose to be stupid. And again, I'm no longer ignorant because I've now been shown the truth. And guys, this happens all the time, not only in matters out in our real world, but it also happens regarding religious things. Now, I'll use one that I see all the time. I see this fight all, I see this fight every day uh, on the, on the uh, internet, through social media. People constantly bickering back and forth about baptism. Baptism, it saves. No, it doesn't save. You don't need to be baptized. Well, it doesn't save, but you need to do it. Let me read to you two passages, Mark 16, 15, and 16. And for anybody who is honest, Anybody who is honest, I shouldn't have to give any more verses than this. Let's listen to our Lord and Savior. Mark 16, 15 and 16. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You need to do those two things. But I'll tell you what, there's even more things listed in other verses. And those also are required. Anytime you find the word salvation being tied with anything, you need to do it. It's not optional, right? And Jesus says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. If my boss told me that I needed to go out and to file some paperwork, and I needed to go out and look at some parts on the assembly line, and if I did that, I would keep my job, guess what I would do? 
exactly what he told me to do. There was two things required. File the paperwork, go look at the parts. And if you do that, you can keep your job. And we get that. Do A, do B, and then you'll receive C. And Jesus says that here, right? You need to believe, you need to be baptized. And if you do that, you'll be saved. But then he says, but he that believeth not, and that is a poor rendering in the King James, apostuo there, that word there is disobey. But he that disobeys shall be damned. All right, Jesus says you need to do these things to be saved. And yet, we get on social media and all the time I see people saying, you don't need to do it. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus says it does. If that's not enough, let me give you one more verse. 1 Peter 3.21. The like figure, that word there is, uh, I didn't write it down, um, antitypon or antitupon. It's, it's actually the Greek word meaning antitype. The like figure or the antitype whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. The Bible says baptism saves us. Is it the only thing that saves us? Nope, and I've never taught that. People accuse us in the churches of Christ of being some water dogs, saying all, all they say is you got to be baptized and you're saved. I never taught that. I don't know any faithful gospel preacher that teaches that. There's a number of things in the New Testament that you need to do to be saved. But I'll tell you this, baptism is a part of salvation, right? He says not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not some bath like those that call us Campbellites and water dogs teach. He says, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. You can have that good conscience because baptism is for the remission of sins. Acts 2, verse 38. Your sins are washed away when you submit to God, of which baptism is just one part. Now, I constantly see people teaching on it. I see the verses being given to support this correct teaching, which I am mentioning right now. It often erupts into arguments. And then when somebody stands for the truth, like I'm doing right now, saying there are Bible verses which teach the necessity of baptism, they begin to label you. They begin to call you things like being narrow-minded. You're unloving. You're so divisive. You're nothing but a troublemaker. You know, why can't you just agree to get along with other people? Guys, the people that are sticking to the book, chapter, and verse, the ones that other people are calling troublemakers and divisive, uh, I call those people truth holders and scholars of the Word. I call those people defenders of the faith. I know other people want to call them derogatory terms, people that don't agree with what they're teaching, but you need to hear correction. And that's what's coming from these truth holders and these defenders of the faith. Now, let me say this. I only gave you two verses talking about baptism, but for everybody who's watching this right now, and both of those verses say you need to do it to be saved, you can choose to love and accept knowledge regarding baptism. Uh, or as the Proverbs writer says, you can continue to be stupid because you're not going to accept reproof or correction. And you may say, well, did he just say, if I disagree with him on baptism, I'm being stupid? What I'm saying is, is you're no longer ignorant. I've given the verses. The Proverbs writer says people who will not receive correction and reproof, they're choosing to be stupid. And let me say this so you can't get mad at me. I used to be that person. I used to be that person. I was the one that rejected Bible truth initially. But guess what? I got corrected enough times and I began to study that I figured out correction was, ne was necessary. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. It's not that I desire to fight with people. I'm certainly not trying to get likes on YouTube because I guarantee you a, a teaching like this will not. Uh, but it is my hope that I can be very straightforward and honest with you, much like Jesus 
was to the crowd, much like the apostles were to the crowds, like the early evangelists were to the crowds, so that you can hear truth, you can understand truth and comprehend it, and so that you will obey truth. And there are some people that might hear this teaching and accept truth. These guys that were out going around teaching truth, they had to correct false understanding for those in the crowd, and they had to tell people how it was that they could please God. That's the whole purpose for correction. The only reason you would correct anybody is because they're wrong on something. And I think we get that logically. Listen to Acts 2, verse 40 and 41. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. This is Peter talking to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. This is the day that he preached the very first gospel sermon. This is the day the church was established. And notice what he tells the crowd. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. He just got done correcting a number of things regarding those in the crowd. And listen to the result. Then they that gladly received His word... Remember I told you some people get corrected and they gladly receive it, right? They want to be righteous. They want to know truth. There are going to be other people in the crowd and they are going to gnarl. They are going to grit their teeth and they are going to fight against every ounce of truth you can give them just because they do not want to accept it. These guys in the crowd, they gladly received it. And the result was they were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Those people that were in the crowd there, they hear Peter teaching the truth. It certainly would have contradicted the things that they believed religiously. And yet they were honest enough and humble enough to receive his word. This led to their obeying of the gospel. And ultimately we see it led to them being added to the church. Acts 2 verse 47, in essence, they were Christians. They became members of the only church in existence at the time. And we find it described as the churches of Christ or the church of God. It was the same institution. We find that there were multiple ones set up in the different, differing cities, but we know that they all held to the faith and they were in unity. Ephesians chapter 4, specifically verses 4, 5, Keep on reading down verse 6. So, for the non-Christian, our goal is to try to teach them the truth so that they will obey the gospel just as Peter was doing. And that means that we have to consistently and outrightly address all erroneous teachings and correct them by giving book, chapter, and verse. I can't agree to disagree on matters of salvation. You want to pick out carpet color for the building? We can agree to disagree. Uh, I wouldn't put red carpet in this building for anything, not unless, I mean, just look, in my opinion, it looks horrible. Uh, I'd use a lot of other colors, but I guess if the majority of people in the congregation wanted it, and it's not a doctrinal matter, I could bite my tongue for a number of years about how bad that carpet would look. But if we want to talk about whether or not baptism is necessity for salvation, and I've already given you a few verses, I can't agree to disagree. I have to stand on Bible truth. And so does every other Christian that wants people to go to heaven. For the Christian, our goal is to continue to contend for the faith that was once given. You know, when a Christian is in error, they also need to be corrected. A lot of people say, oh, well, you, you guys who are members of the Church of Christ, you are so quick to attack anybody in a different religious group. Let me say this. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'll attack my brethren in error just as quick as I'll attack a Baptist in error or a Pentecostal in error or, or my family who's in error. I, I don't pick and choose. 
And we can't do that, especially when they're Christians. Listen to James 5.19. I'll read actually down to verse 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, that means this is a Christian, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. Anytime somebody begins to veer off from the truth, whether they believe things that are not true or whether they're living in a way which is contradictory to the Scriptures, not living in truth, they are sinners, right? And he says that if you convert a sinner from the error of his way, you're going to save a soul from death. You're going to hide a multitude of sins. James says we have to convert sinners. Now, it's funny. Most people, when they think of sinners, at least probably even within the churches of Christ, they're thinking of people who are non-Christians. Are they the only ones non-Christians? No. You've also got wayward Christians or Christians who are in error. They also need to be converted. They need to be converted back to the truth. When people aren't Christians yet and we want to get them to become a Christian, we set up Bible studies. We go and we meet with them and we sit down with them and we begin to study the truth so they'll obey the gospel, right? If somebody's in error, we don't just throw up our hands and go, yeah, he used to be a Christian, he walked away from the church. We have to convert them back if possible. That means we're going to have to set Bible studies up and we're going to have to gather with them and get them to understand the truth so they will come back to leading a faithful life by obeying the truth of our New Testament. Now ask yourself this. How about you call somebody up and say, hey, brother or sister so-and-so, I know that you've been forsaking the assembling. I'm just going to throw this one out there. I know you've been forsaking the assembling, and I'm thinking of one of our uh, people who has visited our congregation quite a few times, haven't seen them in a year. Matter of fact, I need to contact them soon. <laughs> uh, I have contacted them once or twice, but I, I haven't been... I haven't been harsh enough on getting them back to the building. But let's say you contact someone and you say, you know what, you, you've walked away, we've attempted to get you to come back, you haven't. I'd like to sit down and study with you and tell you why what you're doing is unfaithful and why you're going to be deemed as unfaithful forsaking the assembling. Do you think when they hear you say that on the phone, they're going to go, who does he think he is? Why does he got to be so negative all the time? He doesn't know what I'm going through in life. Why has he got to be so divisive all the time and confrontational? I mean, he does things wrong probably too, right? Guys, there are people that need to be told that they are in a sinful situation. That includes our brethren. And it could be for a number of different sins, but do you think it's going to come across very appealing when you begin to tell people that they're in error? No, it's not. It's not. But how are we going to ever convert them back to the truth? Or how are we going to convert someone who's never obeyed the truth if we don't begin to explain to them what it is that they've done. If we don't get both of those groups, the non-Christian and the Christian in error, to realize that they are lost in their sin and that if they do not change their ways, the consequences are going to be horrible. You know, I find it very interesting that everybody today thinks they're going to heaven and they all think they're going in different methods. And if you were to tell anybody that they weren't going to go to heaven according to the Scriptures, they would probably begin to call you a number of things, right? Divisive, confrontational, aggressive. You guys ever noticed why the denominational groups and community churches rarely argue? Why don't they correct people? Well, there's a, a, very, um, a very clear word, probably a big word. It's because they're wishy-washy. <laughs> they just don't care. The Pentecostals don't have a problem with the Baptists. The Baptists don't have a problem with the Methodists. 
None of them have a problem with the community churches because they all live teaching different things. Nobody calls anybody else out, and so it's all good. Nobody's causing a problem for you. You know who does cause problems for people and then they get called divisive? Faithful churches of Christ, faithful ministers of the churches of Christ, faithful members of the churches of Christ who are willing to stand in defense of the gospel. And now all of a sudden, because you've called out religious error, you've got the Pentecostal, the Baptist, the Methodist, the Catholics, the uh, whatever religious group it is you're talking about at the time, you've got all of them ganging up on the churches of Christ because you dared correct somebody. Do you guys want all Baptists to go to heaven? I do. They're not going to, but I would like them to. How about the Methodists? Yeah, I'd like them to go to heaven, but they're not going to go doing and teaching what they teach. How about the community churches? The list goes on and on and on. Anytime a person is in sin uh, or they have erroneous doctrinal beliefs, they've got to be corrected. All people have to be convicted of and convinced of sin. Listen to John 16:8. And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When we read from Matthew 23, was Jesus being confrontational and divisive and aggressive? No. What was He doing? He was trying to reprove the world of sin. Why did Jesus try to reprove the world of sin? And why did He do it publicly? Because He loved their souls. John 13, 13, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Jesus loved them so much, He was willing to stand there to confront their doctrinal error, to call them out, and to get them to understand that they were not righteous. And we are called to love people in the exact same way that Jesus loved them. Reproving people of sin and teaching people of error is just one way we show love. There are a lot of other ways. Go on over to 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. We're going to talk about David for just a second. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. But even David needed to be corrected. Follow along with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I am going to read from verses... 1 down to 7. And this is after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he said unto him, now let me pause for a minute, Nathan the prophet's coming to the king. You, don't tell me he's probably not just a little bit stressed out. He's coming to call the king out for what he has done, uh, for all the sin that he has done in his adultery. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. That's a whole other study. I wish I could cover this. David is going to restore fourfold for what he did. 
And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And he goes on. Nathan had to get David to realize that he had sinned. He didn't just walk in and say, Everybody knows about what you did with Bathsheba. What he did was is he used a story to get David to see the outrage that David should have had for his own sin. But David couldn't see it because he was blind. Let me pause for a minute. How often does that happen where somebody is they're engulfed in sin, uh, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, the list would go on and on, and they can't even see it. They literally can't even see it. They're blind. And the same thing goes for those that hold the religious air. They have been taught religious error for so long that they can't even see because they're blind. And David needed somebody to open up his eyes. And Nathan did that. When, David said, or when Nathan said this to David, do you think it hurt? Do you think, you think David's first impressions were, man, that was pretty harsh? Or do you think he thought, who does he think he is to correct me? I'm the king. Or did he think, man, that's confrontational? Probably seemed pretty unloving when he began to think about it, but later David would realize that this correction was needed and it had the correct result. Sometimes when you correct people, it has the correct result. 2 Samuel 12, 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. He was willing to... He was willing to freely admit of his sin. Being corrected and told truth brought him to the point of admitting his sin and repenting it. Men have to repent sin or else. And not only that, they need to be held accountable until they do. Whether they're a non-Christian or a Christian. If they're a non-Christian, I need to continue to hold their feet to the fire and accountable for sin because if I do not, they will never accept truth nor obey the gospel. Right? And a lot of people might say, Sean, sometimes your sermons and Bible studies are too harsh. We were told in school, I don't know whether they still say this now or not, we were told in school, if you've got somebody in the crowd who's an unbeliever, you better preach that sermon like you are never going to see them again because if you don't prick their heart, they, they'll never obey the gospel. So preach every sermon. Don't waver. Preach it strong. Preach it true. Preach it hard. Teach correction so that they know and so they have no excuse when they walk out the doors to say, well, I didn't know. That's, that's the goal for a good sermon, right? A good Bible study that when somebody gets done, they've got complete truth. They can't walk away, they can't walk away and say, well, I'm ignorant. As we noticed earlier, they can choose to remain stupid, but they can't, they can't choose to claim that they were ignorant. And so we've got to hold them accountable, whether they're a non-Christian or a Christian. Same thing with a Christian in error. If he's in sin, he's going to hold his feet to the fire Continue to correct him because if you don't and he dies in that position, he's going to hell. And so, who cares if he calls you confrontational? Who cares if he says you're aggressive or if you're mean-spirited or you're divisive? If he dies in that situation, he's going to hell. It's pretty, it's pretty clear-cut. You're accountable until you repent. Listen to what Paul told non-Christians there on Mars Hill, Acts 17.30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Can you imagine people in the crowd going, did, did he just say, I need to repent? Who does he think he is? 
Well, he's speaking on God's behalf by inspiration, and he said, you need to repent. What about what Peter told Simon over in Acts chapter 8? Simon was a Christian. You'll have some Baptists who will say he was never a Christian. He was a Christian. Go back and read the account. He had obeyed the gospel. And guess what? Peter tells him he needs to repent. Acts 8.22 Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. You know one of the hardest things is to get people to willingly open up and to confess their sins. The majority of us, we try to keep them hidden down, right? Everybody's got a closet. Don't act like you don't. We've all done things we're ashamed of, or at least we ought to be ashamed of. And we've all done things that we wish other people didn't find out about. Well, because of that, a lot of people, they'll just keep those sins bottled up and tied up in that closet there. And because nobody knows about it, they don't ever correct it. 1 John 1, 9 through 10 says, If we confess our sins, talk about being hard. How hard is it to confess your sins not only to yourself but to someone else? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say that we have not sinned. You ever done that to yourself? That wasn't that bad. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. I mean, not as bad as what he did. That's not how we judge sin. You've got even people out teaching doctrinally that you can't commit sin once you become a Christian. He says, but if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The reason you're a liar is because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's everybody, Christian or non-Christian. That should do away with some of those false doctrines. He says, but if you say that, you make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Yeah, for anybody who's willing to walk around and, and be involved in sin but say that they're not sinning, I can tell you for a fact, I know their words, his word's not in them. We need to hold others accountable until they repent. Listen to Luke 17, 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespassed against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. I wish I could preach that right now. I'd like to go another 35 minutes, but I won't. I'm almost done. So why do we have to focus so hard on getting the non-Christian to repent and Christians to repent? If people will not repent of their sin and their erroneous beliefs they are going to reap the wages of sin. And I don't want that for a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Christ. I don't want that for the Baptists. I don't want it for the Methodists. I don't want it for the Pentecostals. I don't want it for the Catholics. I don't want it for the Christian church. I don't want it for the Unitarian Universalists. I don't want it for the Assemblies of God. I don't want it for any of them. I want everyone just to become a New Testament Christian just like me, follow nothing but the Scripture, throw away all their doctrinal error, that's been come up by men that you can't support with book, chapter, and verse. And I want them to be a faithful Christian, the same as all other Christians who are living nothing but by nothing other than the New Testament. I don't want them to reap the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Galatians 6.7 and 8 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Why do we correct people? We want people to reap life everlasting. If you are a faithful Christian right now and you love souls, you are going to have to correct people. You're going to have to. And if you truly desire to be righteous, 
You're going to accept correction with an open heart and a willingness to study. Correction is needed. Is it divisive? Yeah, it is. Is it in your face sometimes? Yeah, it is. Is it aggressive? Shouldn't be. We should be doing everything in love. It's not hateful at all. As a matter of fact, correction is one of the most loving things that anybody can do. And as I draw this to a close, let me correct something for maybe those watching this who are not yet Christians. I know people teach a lot of different things regarding how to be saved. I'm simply going to ask you to go back and review all the conversion accounts. It's very simple. Somebody was teaching the gospel. That's how faith comes, by hearing, Romans 10, 17. You need to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. By believing that, you'll understand in Matthew 16, 18 through 20 that He established His church. In Ephesians 4, we learn that the church was in unity, that it was one faith. We also learn that He shed His blood for the remission of sins. And if you're not willing to believe that, you're going to die in your sins, John 8, 24. Because you've heard it, because you've believed it, because I, as I've already explained the consequence of sin, you're going to be willing to repent of your sins, Acts 17, 30. And you're going to be willing to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you're going to finally be willing to be immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, as Jesus has declared, Mark 16, 15, and 16, because it does save, 1 Peter 3.21. It is the culminating act in every conversion account, and it is what allows you to be faithful to the obeying of the complete gospel so that the Lord will add you to His church, Acts 2, verse 47. If you've not done that, I pray that as I just corrected your false belief with Scripture, I pray that it would prick your heart enough that you might email us or that you might call us. And if you're here and you're watching this and you are a Christian, if you have failed to correct those you love, if you have failed to uh, address those that you know are currently living in sin, if you have failed to try to draw people back to the truth, and you're going to be responsible for or partially responsible for them dying as either an unfaithful Christian or as a person who was never taught the gospel when you had time and time and time of opportunity. Let me say this very lovingly. Would you please correct those people? Do your part as a Christian. Stand for the defense of the gospel and save souls. And the only way you'll ever do that is to correct people.